The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, you promise us in your word that your word will not return void. That it will bear fruit in our lives. We cling to that promise this morning. We look to your faithfulness to minister to us Sunday after Sunday, day after day, moment after moment through your word, God. And so, Lord, we cling to that promise this morning and pray for you to transform us through it, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, I was introduced to a new phrase. It's the phrase, election promise. You probably know what this word means, but if you Google it, you'll find on Wikipedia an elaboration on the meaning. It says an election promise or campaign promise is a promise or guarantee made to the public by a candidate or political party that are trying to win an election. Psychology today elaborates on these election promises and the importance of them. And it says every politician knows that the key to winning elections is to make great promises. Campaigners promise to cure the ills of society, including taxes, war, government, corruption, and pollution, and that they will bring about vast improvements in education, employment, infrastructure, and the economy. And it says the size of the elected office seems almost correlated with the size of the promise. All of us are familiar with election promises. All of us have heard election promises. Promises are something that we are wired to hold on to, something that we cling to as a hope for a better future, that things will change, that things will become as they are supposed to be. There's several election promises I looked up over this week, and so I want to read a couple of those to you, and I want, I want you to think to yourself, what is, what is in common with these election promises? What is similar between all of these? And again, I'm not asking if you agree with them or disagree with them, but, but what is in, in common with all of them? So Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964 promised that we are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away to Vietnam. Ronald Reagan in 1986 promised, he said, we did not, repeat, did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages, nor will we. George Bush in 1988, this might give away what's in common, said, read my lips. What do he say? You know, no new taxes. Okay. And Barack Obama, I can't, I don't know the years, said that he promised to cut the cost of the typical family's health insurance premium by up to $2,500 a year. And so what do all these campaign promises have in common? They're lies. They didn't come to fruition, right? These promises were all broken. Now let's be fair. There are reasons why all of these promises are broken. Uh, Some of the reasons may be that the politicians changed their mind and should have changed their mind, giving development in society or changing information. Sometimes these promises were broken because the politicians simply did not have the power to make it come true. They could not get Congress on the same page. And of course, the cynic would say the politicians were just lying to get elected. We cling to promises Because we hope for a brighter future. You know, God does not make campaign promises because God is not campaigning to be God. God is God, period. 
But God does make us divine promises throughout Scripture. Let me read you a couple. In James 1.5, God promises us to give us wisdom if we ask for it. It's a promise from God. In 1 Corinthians 10, he promises to provide us a way out of temptation. In John 10, he promises that our salvation is secure, that no one can rob us from the Father's hand. In Hebrews 13, he promises to never leave us and to never forsake us. In Philippians 1, he promises to finish the good work in you that he has begun. In 1 John 2, he promises us eternal life if we trust in Christ. And in Luke 12, he promises to come back again. Now, as we struggle to believe the promises of people, we often transfer this over to God, and we struggle to believe the promises of God. I think as we hear these promises spoken to us through God's word, intellectually, we believe them. In many ways, we say, yes, we believe the promises of God, but oftentimes, It doesn't make the 12-inch journey down to our hearts. Many times we do not believe them in the depth of our soul, and we don't live as if these promises are true. Let me give you a few examples from my own life. For example, God promises me that if I go and ask him for wisdom, that he will give it to me. What an amazing promise from God, isn't it? I mean, isn't that amazing? God says, hey, if you ask me for wisdom, I will give it to you. I believe that in my head. But how infrequently do I go and say, Lord, grant me wisdom in this area or this area or this area? Because although I believe it in my head, so often it does not journey down to my heart. Or God promises us a way out of temptation. How many times have I looked for that way when I was tempted? Not often enough, I will tell you that. Or God promises us that we will have eternal life forever and ever, and it will be glorious, and it will be wonderful. It will be better than we could even possibly imagine. And I believe that in my head, but how often do I live for today and live with a view of my kingdom and not God's kingdom? You see, it is, it is, is one thing to believe God's promises in our head, but it is a whole nother level to believe them in our hearts and live them out in our lives. And so today we need to look And we need to see and we need to know, will God be faithful to his promises to us? Can we believe him not only in our head, but but with our heart and live them out with our lives? If you would please open up to Acts chapter 23. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 35. Today's page 932 in the Red Bible and page 1210 in the Children's Bible. This past week, I was visiting with Kaylin Spencer, who's a missionary to Taiwan. Uh, he'll actually be preaching next week for you all. Um, he's the son-in-law of Mark and Nina Kaiser, if you know them. Um, but I was kind of lamenting to him that I gave him the good chapter, Acts chapter 24, and I got stuck with these verses, which, of course, God likes to kick you in the backside when you say that, right? Um, because here, basically, this story is about the transfer of a prisoner. Um, that's pretty much it. But in the midst of this, it is so valuable because what it shows us is a promise that God has made and whether or not he is going to fulfill it. You see, how can we be confident? How can we be confident that, that God or, or really any person will keep their promise? How can we be confident in it? Well, it's by looking at their track record, right? If someone promises me something and they have made me 15 promises before, and they have broken half of them, I'm not very confident when they promise me something. But if they have fulfilled all of their promises, then I know that I can take their promise to the bank. And so we want to use this story as a case study 
to, to, to see the track record of God. Is God faithful to his promises throughout Scripture? And if so, that we can be confident, not only in our heads, but in our hearts, that God will be faithful to his promises in the future. So I want to look first at the promise that God makes to Paul. It's not a promise that he makes to all of us, but a promise that he makes to Paul. And just to remind you of the setting, Paul was taken by the Jews. He was beaten within an inch of his life. The Romans rescued him. Uh, They were going to examine him by scourging, if you remember. Um, But they found out he was a Roman citizen. And so they took him back to the Jewish council to figure out why they were so angry with Paul. Uh, They ended up fighting with each other. They took Paul back to their barracks. The Romans did. And then the next night, this is what happened. So let's read together verse 11. It says, the following night, The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. That is the exhortation. And then here is the promise. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so here's God's promise. God's promise to Paul is that you are invincible until you make it to Rome. That I will bring you to Rome and you will testify in Rome about the truths of the resurrection. This was Paul's spirit-inspired desire. Back in Acts 19, we read that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul wanted to go Rome because it was the epicenter of the empire that he was a part of, and it's where the gospel could flourish and go forth to the outer stretches of the earth. And so this is the promise that God makes to Paul. That, that Paul will make it to Rome. But here's the deal. There is a threat to the promise of God. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, that's the Roman officials, to bring Paul down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The degree of hatred directed towards Paul is it's kind of inconceivable. I mean, all of us have experienced what it's like to, to not be liked by other people, maybe even to be hated by other people. But have you ever had 40 people vow to not eat or drink until they murder you? I mean, this is how much they hate Paul. And not only that, they, they conspire together. They conspire together with with the Jewish council to make sure that this happens. Now, if you remember from last week, just to give some clarification, Paul went before the Jewish council, and and some of them were actually defending Paul, and some of them were against Paul. The Sadducees were against Paul. The high priest was against Paul. Probably some of the Pharisees were against Paul. But then there were other Pharisees who actually said, we find nothing wrong with this man. And so this this cohort of zealots come to the tribune, probably to the the high priest and the Sadducees and maybe some of the Pharisees, others who shared their animosity towards Paul. And they make this plan that that they're going to call Paul to examine him more closely. And when he is on the way, that they will overcome Paul and that they will kill him. And so this is the plan. Now, this is a real threat, a real threat not only to Paul's life, 
but also to God's promise to bring Paul to Rome. You know, when I marry couples, actually, let me back up. I'll tell you a funny story. This is totally, totally tangent. One time I was sitting in the kitchen with my kids, and I told them, I said, I've married 10 women. And their eyes got so big, they're like, you married 10 women? I'm like, yeah. And they look at each other, and they look back, and they say, does mom know? And I'm like, she knows. And I said, but I've only kissed your mom. That's it. So, but when I marry people, um, that's completely tangent. When I, when I marry people, I, I, I ask them to make some pretty audacious promises. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you've made very similar audacious promises. I ask them to promise to love one another, to honor one another at all times, to cherish one another as long as you both shall live. I ask them to promise to stay with one another and to be faithful to one another in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better or for worse. Now, to be honest with you, I do not know a single couple that has lived up to these promises that they made in their marriage, not fully or completely. I could tell you stories of couples who on their honeymoon, 24 hours were fighting like cats and dogs and by no means were cherishing one another. But we make these outlandish promises that if my spouse goes psycho, I'm going to cherish them. That's the promise that we're making. But our promise is attacked. It's attacked by difficulties. It is threatened. You know, so often I think when we say, you know, I promise to do something, what we're really saying is I promise to do it unless it becomes difficult, right? As a matter of fact, just, just so you know, this promise that these 40 men made was exactly that. There was something in rabbinical law that would, that would free them from their vow if their vow so happened to be impossible. You know, it's been said that humans can live three hours without shelter in the snow. In the snow. They can live three days without water, and they can live three weeks without food. These Jews are promising within the next three days to kill Paul. And they are being held accountable because they have told this to the religious leaders. And so what we see is that the promise of God is threatened. But God, unlike man, is sovereign. He's the sovereign Lord and has power to protect his promises. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, throughout the New Testament, we really don't hear anything about Paul's family other than that Paul is from Tarsus. But evidently, Paul's nephew has moved to Jerusalem. And some way, somehow, his nephew uncovers this secret plot to kill Paul. We don't know if he was passing by the window when the conversation was being had or if he knew someone who knew someone who leaked the information. But some way, somehow, Paul's nephew overheard of this plot to take Paul's life. Verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him in the tri- to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he had something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, 
the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. As we read on in the chapter, we'll see that the report of Paul's nephew ends up saving his life. But what I want to focus on for this particular part of the passage is the providence of God, of how God has orchestrated all things to protect his promise to Paul. That he has brought Paul's nephew to Jerusalem from Tarsus. That he had given Paul's nephew certain relationships or put him in a certain area where he could overhear this plot. That God providentially has orchestrated that the, that the military, that the, that the captors would listen to the testimony of a child and they wouldn't even look for an adult to validate it. God has orchestrated all these things by his providential plan to protect his promise. You know, often when I sit down with people and I hear their story, we'll say mockingly to each other, oh, that's so lucky that that happened because it's obvious that it wasn't luck, but that God was behind the scenes at work. Let me share with you a couple examples. I have so many examples I could share, but let me just share with you a few. A week ago, I called up Barb Robertson, who is running our, our library, and I said, hey, Barb, I think I'm going to go to the elders and ask them for $1,000 to bolster the children's material in there and media and other things that you need. And she started to tear up, and she says, you have to be kidding me. I said, what? She goes, last night I was praying, and the Lord put on my heart to ask you to ask the elders for $1,000 to bolster the library, right? How lucky that was for Barb, right? My friend Stephen, I've shared these stories before, but they still amaze me. My friend Stephen, we were in seminary. Uh, he, was, he didn't have a lot of money. He was working to try to pay for his, his necessities and things like that. He had a friend loan him $100, and he's out, and he's working, and he's pulling weeds, and he's praying, Lord God, how am I going to get $100 to pay my friend back? And as my friend Stephen is, is praying this, he's picking weeds, and as he picks one weed, underneath the weed is a $100 bill. How lucky that is, Right? I don't have enough faith to believe in luck, all right? Or one time I was in St. Louis. Again, I've shared this before, but Corbin was a baby, and I had him in a jogging stroller, and I had my, my two dogs with me, and we're jogging around our neighborhood, and we're on the other side of the street of our neighborhood, and, and this pit bull that is just ferociously angry because my dogs are running by, uh, he jumps the fence, and he starts heading towards us, Okay? Out of nowhere, a car comes and hits the dog. How lucky is that? I don't have enough faith to believe in luck. I don't know about you. But God is providentially orchestrating all things to fulfill his plan and to fulfill his promise. He even orchestrates the little circumstances, such as the nephew of Paul overhearing this plot. And he uses it to protect his promise. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentators, talks about it in this way. He asks this, this penetrating question. He says, do you think of circumstances as being things that are against you, something that God cannot control? Have you ever found yourself thinking, if the circumstances of my life were different, 
Perhaps then I could have been somebody or could have done something great for God or could have triumphed in this particular difficulty in which I am now. Do not think that way. And he says this, circumstances do not limit God. Circumstances are not independent of God. God creates circumstances. And then he says, God is the master of circumstances. What circumstance in your life, if you could so choose, would you change? We know that God is not the author of sin or evil. And yet he has orchestrated all situations. He is sovereign over all things to draw us to himself, to accomplish his plan, and to protect his promises. You know, as I say that, I know the question that comes up in many of our hearts is what about when really bad things happen? You know, in the past week, I've, I've grieved with people uh, because they've lost someone close to them, a child close to them who has died at a young age. I've grieved with people because their father is diagnosed with cancer. I've grieved with someone because their friend was hit by a drunk driver. This has all happened in the past week. I'm sure you have done the same. And the question comes to mind, really, is God sovereign over all these things? Is he in control of all these things? And while we could talk about this for a great length of time, I just, wanna, I just want you to think about this. When tragedy happens, you really have two options, okay? Option number one is you can believe that God is not sovereign over all things. You can believe that, that God's not in control of everything. Option number two is you can believe that God is sovereign over everything, even over tragedy. Now here's the deal. Whether you believe option A or option B, it leaves you with a lot of questions, right? If you say God is not sovereign over tragedy, then it leaves you with the question, is God in control of anything, right? I mean, is, is this world just out of control, headed towards destruction, and God has no control at all, right? So it leaves you with that question. But if you believe that God is sovereign over tragedy, then it leaves you with the question of, why did God do this, right? And so, so whether you believe option A or option B, they both leave you with questions, right? Do you understand? But only one of those options is consistent with Scripture, and only one of those options gives us hope in the midst of tragedy. You see, if God is not sovereign in the midst of tragedy, there is no hope that God will use that tragedy, that God will use it for his good and for his purpose. But if God is sovereign over all things, even bad things, even evil things, even wicked things that he's not the author of, even if God is sovereign over all those things, then we can rest that he has a plan, that it wasn't in vain, that God will use this evil, wicked thing for his good purposes. God is sovereign over all things, over all your circumstances, and he is providentially planning all things to fulfill and to protect his glorious promises to his people. And this leads us to the final point, the fulfilling of God's promise. How is Paul going to escape the Jews? How is Paul going to make it to Rome? Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely 
to Felix, the governor. The Romans probably had about a thousand soldiers in Jerusalem. And so Claudius Lysias takes almost half of them and he sends him on this commission to escort Paul safely out of Jerusalem towards Caesarea at 9 p.m. at night. Okay, verse 25. And he, Claudius Lysias, wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, this is almost true. We do know that the Jews took Paul and beat him and that the Romans rescued him. But what is untrue is that they did not discover at that time Paul was a Roman citizen, but after they were about to flog him, if you remember. So he changes the information here a little bit, right? He gives some fake news so that he can protect his own skin, okay? It continues, verse 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him, Paul, down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So he's saying there, Paul is innocent as far as I'm concerned. He shouldn't be put to death. He shouldn't even be put in jail. Verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. So just to give you a picture, Antipatris is about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And so the full military unit takes him to Antipatris. They spend the night there, and a lot of the military personnel go back, but the horsemen in the morning take Paul and continue on to Caesarea. Verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province, that, uh, what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, which was in Felix's jurisdiction, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. In this passage, in this transfer of this prisoner, Paul, is revealed the brilliance of God. How is God going to get Paul to Rome? How is, Paul, how is God going to give Paul an audience with the elitists in the empire? How is God going to do these things? How is he going to fulfill his promise? Was well, by hiding Paul in the ark of the Roman military, the most powerful military in the world. We see this throughout the Old Testament, but here we see it in the New Testament, that God uses the opposing enemy empires to accomplish his purposes. God uses the Roman military first to rescue Paul from the Jews on two different occasions, then to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea under heavy military guard. And now he is staying in this prison where he will be for a couple of years and God is going to use that to write letters. And then he is going to take Paul through this Roman military into Rome, into the heart of Rome, to get him into the elite company of the Roman Empire to communicate the gospel. You see, this Roman military is a Trojan horse for Paul. It is a place that he can hide, that he can be escorted into the city walls through his chains. 
to share the good news of the gospel. We read this in the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, we read about how Paul has come to, Jerusalem, or come to Rome. And then in Philippians chapter 1, a letter that he's written from prison in Rome, Paul says this. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It is Paul's chains that protects him from his enemies. It is Paul's chains that gets him an audience with the emperor. It is Paul's chains that protects God's promise. I can imagine, you know, some old TV show where they say, hey, I have an idea. Here's what we want to do. In order to get you to Rome, let's get you arrested and have the Romans take you there. And, and some guy, you know, playing with his mustache says, that's so crazy, that might just work, right? I mean, this is, this is crazy, and yeah, it's brilliant. This is the plan of God for the gospel to go forth at the top of the Roman Empire. Friends, what we learn here is that God not only orchestrates the little things in life, like nephews overhearing conversations, but he orchestrates big things like the Roman Empire to fulfill his promise. And we can trust God's promise, not only because God has intention to fulfill them, but because God has the power to do it. You know, if, 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 if you woke up tomorrow and, and you had two, two appointments, one with me and one with Bill Gates, and I sat with you and I said, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars, right? Uh, you'd probably question that a little bit. Not because my intentions aren't pure, but because you'd say, he really does not have the resources or power to do that. But if Bill Gates said, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars, you'd probably be a lot more excited. Why? Because he has the resources and power to give you a million dollars. The reason why we can trust the promises of God is not only because it is his intention to fulfill it, but because he has the resources and power to make sure that they are accomplished. And so we can stand upon and trust in the promises of God, not only because his intentions are pure, but because he has the power sovereignly to orchestrate all things to make sure that his promises are fulfilled. Let me end with this. As we look at this outline, the promise of God, the threat to God's promise, the protection of God's promise, the fulfilling of God's promise, this is not only the outline of this passage of Acts 23, 11 through 35, but this is the outline of the entire biblical story. You see, in Genesis, after Adam and Eve fell, and brought sin and fallenness and brokenness into the world, God came and he gave his first promise. And he actually gave his promise to Satan, but it has ramifications for us. God says to Satan, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the descendant of the woman's singular seed, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's promise is that Satan will not win the war. God promises that he will overcome the evil one with a promised one that is to come from the line of Eve. And this promise is continually threatened throughout the biblical story. Cain kills Abel, and Cain is sent off. There goes Eve's two children, and yet God is going to provide for his promise. Wickedness grows in the earth, and it's so bad that every inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. So God says, we need a reset. I'm going to flood the world. But God preserves a remnant. 
Noah on the ark. And not only was Noah and his family on that ark, but so was the promise of God to Eve. And then God elaborates on this promise to Abraham. He says, hey, from your descendants, there will be a descendant of yours that will be a blessing to all nations. And then he elaborates it to David. He says, from you will come one who will sit on the throne for all eternity. And so God makes these promises. And they're constantly under threat by the barrenness of women, by the sinful idolatry of God's people, by the conquering empires of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Persians. And God's, threat is con- God's promise is constantly under threat. And people are always wondering, is God going to be faithful to his promise? And then there are 400 years of silence with no scripture, no prophecy. And the people are wondering, has God given up on us? Has God abandoned us? Have we gotten so bad that God is going to go back on his promise? And then we get to the New Testament. And the promised one is born. Jesus Christ, who comes into the world. And as we read in 2 Corinthians 1, it says, for all the promises of God, all the promises of God, Find their yes in Jesus. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies, all the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised one who would come to the cross and crush the head of Satan, triumphing over him and raised from the dead. And yet, friends, church, the story is not over. Christ has come to fulfill God's promise in part. But Christ has promised to come again, to fulfill God's promise in whole. And so here we are, clinging to the promise of God, singing about it this morning, this promise that Christ will return, that he will be our inheritance, that we will live in glory for him for all eternity. And yet we wrestle, we struggle to believe this promise. 2 Peter chapter 3 elaborates on this to great extent. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from there. 2 Peter 3, 4 says, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but in patience towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then 2 Peter 3, 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, how do we know that God will fulfill this promise? How do we know that God will return in Jesus Christ to set all things right again, to make all the broken things whole again, to make all the sad things come untrue? How do we know that this will happen? By looking at God's track record. By seeing that he has fulfilled his promise to Eve and to Abraham and to David and to Paul, to his people Israel. And most certainly he will fulfill his promise to the church by once again bringing back the promised one, Jesus Christ, to make all things new again. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often live as if your promises are not true. Forgive us, Lord. Let us live with great hope and great joy, knowing that all your promises come true in Jesus. That he has come to conquer Satan at the cross on our behalf, 
to win our salvation, that we can be in relationship with you, that we can be cleansed from our sins, from even the worst of our sins. And so we thank you, God, for the promises you have fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but we also cling to the promises of his second coming, that this world is not all that there is, that we are sojourners, Lord, that there is a better place that yet awaits us, where there is no more crying and no more pain, but only complete and utter enjoyment of you for all eternity. Help us, Lord, to believe this great promise, not only in our head, but in the depths of our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.